We've been going through a series called Foundational Framework. The reason why we've been going through this is because one great mistake that is made is we often start with Jesus. I know that sounds strange, but a lot of times, especially in our day and age, when you just throw Jesus out there, when you just say, well, you need to believe in Jesus, a lot of people today do not have a framework to understand that. Who's Jesus? Why do I need to trust him? I've never met him. We don't live in an age any longer where we have this long family history development throughout an understanding and a reverence for the Bible. It's just not there anymore. So the truth of it doesn't change, but our approach needs to. And what's interesting is, is all we do is, instead of starting in Matthew, we back up 39 books and we explain to everybody, here is the gospel. This is who God is. This is what sin is. And this is who man is so that you can understand the God-man who saves you from sin. Everybody understand that? So here are the major truths that we've seen at the front, foundational truths. Number one, the Bible, what you hold in your hand or what you testified to me by not raising your hand that you have with you today is the revelation of God. This is truth. Now we live in an age where people tell you, oh, you can't know what's true. There are no absolutes, right? Everything is relevant. That might be good for you, but it's not good for me. I say that's just denial. That's just people trying to find wiggle room. That's people trying to grease the hard places in life to try to make them make sense, apart from something being true. Well, I don't believe the Bible's true because it's got contradictions. I haven't found one person that's been able to show me a contradiction in the Bible. They say that because they heard it from somebody who also didn't read the Bible, and that's how they came to their conclusion. But when I say, oh, it's got contradictions, show me. (laughs) All of a sudden, they start speaking in tongues. I don't know what the problem is. Who knows? The second thing we found is is that God is eternal. He has always been. He always will be. He is the uncaused cause of history. He is also sovereign. Sovereign. Which means because he made everything, he has the right and ownership over those things. He is the creator. Nothing was. And out of all ways he create, you and I create through sand, Lego blocks. I don't know. Some of you create very elaborate stories I've heard lately. But I won't go into that. But we create a lot of stuff by using prior stuff. God needs no stuff to create. Instead, he speaks and it is. That's how he creates. And everything that he creates is consistent with this character. It's all good. Everything is good that he makes. Number three, you and I as created beings, we're responsible and we're held to a moral standard. If God is the creator and if he is the owner of all things, he sets the standard for what is right and what is wrong. I'm working on teaching my son that right now. Because when he gets mad, and tell me if, you, if you've been there, just give me an amen, okay? Amen. <laughs> it must have been that bad. I haven't even said it yet. <laughs> yes, brother, yes. But when he gets mad, he wants to hit. That's where he's at. And he wants to hit his mom. Yeah. So the first time, we use the left hand. And then when it happened again, we use the right hand. 
and it didn't happen again. Because he has to be taught right from wrong. At all costs, there is a right and wrong. How often do you like to get hit? There's a right and wrong. Amazingly enough, God establishes that. He establishes us with dignity, but he also establishes us with boundaries. How about the next one? Sin originates within a person. If you want to know where sin starts, simply take your finger and put it right here. That's where it starts. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Which means good grief. Sometimes you've got to wonder, what am I thinking? What am I doing? Where did that come from? How did that get out of my mouth? What? Sin originates here. And what sin does is it causes death. And it's interesting because the definition of death in Scripture is not ceasing to be, it's separation. It is being separated from somebody, is the idea. That's what sin does. Sin is so powerful, it separates the created being from their creator. The fourth one, God declares someone righteous, because that's really the problem. The problem is is that God is completely righteous, and that we need to be righteous, but we're not righteous, and have no hope of being righteous. You can't conjure your own righteousness. It's not a Rachel Ray recipe. No one here is the pioneer woman of the spiritual realm. It cannot happen. So what does Jesus do? He sees the problem, even though he's the one who is offended. And he steps in and makes a resolve to the offense. Now you talk about, I mean, it's, it's odd for me. But God is humble in supplying the means to restoration from a prideful and arrogant sinful bunch like we are. So notice, you and I can be declared righteous in one way and one way only, and that's not by works. It is only by faith. It is only by believing the righteousness that has been applied or supplied for you. The next, the glory of God is the centerpiece and goal of all existence. How many people watch the news? Okay, now with your hand up, put, put, put your hand up. Put your hand down if you watch the news because you uh, have to. So the rest of you watch the news because you like it. Is that right? You like the news. Okay, I'm going to pray with you guys over here after church is done. Okay? Because I read the news and I'm like, everybody's on crazy pills. What is going on here? This place is insane. Have you ever been just marveling at the world that you live in? Good gravy, there is darkness everywhere. The brightest places on earth have the most darkness in them. It's incredible. So the centerpiece of all of it is the fact that regardless of how bad it gets, God is going to resolve all things for His glory. And how does He do that? The last one. God's glory is maximally realized in the promised coming kingdom. There will be a day when Jesus Christ returns, Laverne spoke very passionately and dramatically about it. And he will grab the sky and it will roll up like a scroll. And he will return to correct all opposition and evil, to make all things right. And he at that moment will establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, in the midst of Israel. And he will sit down physically literally on the throne of his great descendant David who we're going to talk about today. Now, 
I'm going to throw some things at you today that if you haven't been here for this series, you're going to think I'm crazy and not want to come back. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. On the website, if you go to sermons, and you go to sermon number three, it was the third sermon that I preached here. It deals all with the spiritual realm, angels, demons, celestial beings. You're going to hear me say the words divine counsel is the idea, and it's from Psalm 82. And you're going to hear all of these things about the spiritual realm and what goes on in the unseen. Things that go on behind what we see. The literal and the physical is only half. The unseen is the other half. And that makes a total of reality. See, this is the reason why I have problem with a lot of the secular sciences. Is they only want to deal a lot and make conclusions about what they see. There's a lot that goes on that we don't see. There's a lot going on right now in order to keep us from this book of all things. And there's only one category for that, and it's evil. That's it. Let's not rationalize it. Let's not smooth it over. Let's not say, oh, well, it's neutral. Nothing is neutral in this life. Not a thing. Nothing is neutral. Anybody disagree? Anybody scared to disagree? Okay, good. Just making sure. So here's the thing. Everybody take your Bibles. Turn to 2 Samuel 7. When you go through the Scriptures and you observe things about the angelic realm, about heaven, about demons, about such instances as the Nephilim, and what went on in those situations, the sons of God is, the, is, is usually the designation that is used. You always find attached to it or around it about rulers, kingdoms, dominions, thrones, those types of things. Everybody with me? Okay. So when you talk about those things, you're talking about the unseen realm. You may remember back when we dealt with who Satan is. And we talked about that the address to Satan in the book of Ezekiel is actually written to someone called the king of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. Why is that? Because Lucifer is the demonic being that is behind the human person who is ruling that nation at that time. He is the one who is pulling all the strings for evil and injustice going on. This is the problem with the social justice movement. The social justice movement thinks that a lot of Christians just need to close their Bibles, get rid of their crosses, and go help and feed and love and nurture and medicate people and educate and clothe people. But the problem is not physical. The problem is spiritual. Why is that? Because anytime we see some things about unrighteousness and injustice going on in the Bible, it's because demons are behind it all. It's because Satan is called the God of this world. It's because he's called the prince of the power of the air. It's because he's called the, the king of this present age. And the majority of those references came straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. So at this present time, the person ruling over this world is Satan. The kingdom is not already here, but not yet here. It's not kind of here, but not really here. The kingdom of God is not here. It was offered by Jesus to the Jews. The Jews equated his miraculous works of God and credited them to Satan himself. 
committing the unpardonable sin. And at that moment, the kingdom was postponed until a future time. If you read through the book of Matthew and that transition happens in Matthew chapter 12, you will notice that after that point, Jesus only then began speaking of his betrayal, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Not up to that point. So a legitimate, bona fide offer to the Jews, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, was made to them. Why? Because as a nation, they needed to repent and believe in their king who was standing before them. So now we are living in an age that was unpronounced in the Old Testament called the church age. And you and I have a personal relationship with God himself through everything that Jesus Christ has done in his work on the cross, not only giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit, but giving us a new nature and a new life of which we could live, which is his resurrected life. You can actually live a completely different life than what you live simply by submitting to the word of God. That's the difference that truth makes and here's the thing if it wasn't true it wouldn't have that effect so when we get into something like second samuel 7 we are dealing with god taking his foot and drawing a major line in the sand as far as the spiritual realm is concerned now raise your hand if you think i'm bananas so far some of you already thought that before i started the sermon that's good all right so let me explain to you what's going on we're actually going to pick up in verse 8 when we start but here's the thing david is finally installed as king. He has gotten to this power where all of his enemies have been, have been thwarted. God's taking care of it. God fights for him is the idea. Somebody comes in, builds him a really great house. And while he's sitting there in his mansion, he's looking around and he's thinking, you know what, this is sad that I live in a beautiful place and the ark of God that represents his presence is sitting in a tent out in the front yard. I want to build God a house. I want to build him something. If anything, he should have something that is greater than anything I have. He's God. And I'm certainly not. And it's interesting to see that in David's core, he's disturbed. But God speaks to Nathan the prophet and said, go to David and tell him this. You're not going to build a house for me. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Now watch the language carefully. I'm going to point out strategic and pivotal things to you thus says the lord of what hosts what in the world does that mean is that just like people that greet you at the front door what is that hosts what is that anybody anybody created beings could be it actually deals with he's the god or he's yahweh of the angelic realm in fact, the definition that's given from this Hebrew word, uh, look at here, armies, heavenly bodies, or his entourage. Have you ever thought of God having an entourage? This is just how God rolls, right? That's how we look at it. But he's talking about the God over all celestial beings. When we see the Lord of hosts, that's an intentional use. And we need to have our minds switch to think of, we're talking about something that he's going to say that has an effect on the spiritual realm. So he says here, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. Now, if you remember, he did the same thing to Saul. Saul was a nobody. God had him anointed by Samuel and installed him as king. But because of his disobedience, the kingdom was taken from him and he was removed. Then David was anointed and put into place. You used to follow sheep, David. Now you're ruling over my sheep, my people Israel. Notice he says here, verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone. 
and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men, <coughs> excuse me, who are on the earth. So in other words, God guides, God fights, and God blesses David. God has been holding his hand this entire time. In fact, what are, what's, one of the, what's the major thing we know about David? He's what? He's saying it again, what? I heard it. He's a man after God's own heart. Do you realize that's not said of anyone else in the Scriptures? God said, this is somebody who wants nothing but my heart all the time. He passionately pursues me. In fact, it's interesting. If you read before this, when they bring the Ark of the Covenant in, I mean, David strikes up a hoedown. He has the boys come in with jug bands and you know all kinds of things. They bring out the washboard, and he just goes to town dancing. I think of the Peanuts kids all dancing at the Christmas thing, right? He has a good old time. He loves God, and he lets it be shown, which tells you there's nothing wrong with ecstatic worship as long as it's not crazy, right? Fine line. <laughs> Moving on, verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. So in other words, notice, this automatically goes to, there's going to be a future time when I'm going to plant Israel, and no more issues or friction are they going to have with the rest of the nations. Now notice, the wickedness, or sorry, uh, yeah, wicked afflicted to them as, as was formerly, verse 11, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. In other words, how bad it was and how rebellious they were and how people would come in and take them away as slaves so that I would discipline them for their disobedience. We're not going to have that anymore. They're not going to have those issues anymore. So he says here, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord, Yahweh, also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. And David said, what? God, I came to you with a sincere heart because I want to make a place for you. You're out in a tent. If that doesn't resonate with you, imagine next time your parents come over and say, your old bed's outside, okay? That's the idea. How many of you, well, I don't want to ask that question. <laughs> I'm going to get some mother-in-law jokes. By the way, Mother's Day is next Sunday. No mother-in-law jokes, right? Save that for the Sunday after. Okay. Just kidding with you guys. All right. So notice, I want to make a house for you. Instead of David making a house for God, God is going to make a house for David. Now, what does that mean? Because David already is living in a literal house, and it's quite beautiful from everything, all the quality uh, of materials that were used. What does that mean? Well, let's keep reading and let's see. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. So notice when he's talking about a house here, he is talking about a bloodline. He's talking about, David, I'm going to establish for you a lineage that's going to take place. You're going to have a child, and I will establish his kingdom. And every time we're talking about kingdom, we're talking about a ruling and reigning situation. And he says here, go on to the next one, verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Now this is obviously pointing to Solomon, which we're going to be looking at next week. Solomon is the one who is allowed to build the temple for the Lord. 
We actually find out when we read later that David's hands were so covered in blood from everybody that he had destroyed who opposed Israel that God did not consider, of all things, even though he was a man after his own heart, did not consider him worthy to build a house for his name. However, Solomon reigned in peace. And because he didn't have blood on his hands, he was given the okay, the moving forward, in order to build a house for God. I love it. Notice he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Where he will literally sit and reign. He has that right. It's given to him. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, that's how you know it's not talking about the Lord Jesus. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. In other words, I'll bring in other pieces, people to paddle his behind when he gets out of line and doesn't follow me any longer. Why? Because a loving father disciplines his kids. That's the reason why. So notice it says here, verse 15, but my loving kindness. Everybody see this word? It's one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. God's loyal love. He is loyally loving to David. Now think about it. God is saying, I am loyally loving you in this way. And how does He do it? He fulfills everything He says. Notice this. My loving kindness shall not depart from Him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Now does everybody remember how Saul died? Everybody remember all the crazy things he was involved in? Man, he even killed 85 Levitical priests because he got upset. I mean, that, guy, that guy's life went off the rails, man. But notice what he's saying here. When I took my love away from Saul because of his disobedience, I'm not going to do that. Or let's say it this way. If Saul's kingdom pictures anything in his reign, it was a reign that tried to be lived by his own works. What we find here because of the unconditional nature of what Yahweh is saying to David, this is a kingdom that is established by grace. It is unconditional in nature. Or notice this. When David's descendants mess up, right? When he commits iniquity, I'll deal with him. I won't spare the rod on him. Notice, he's going to mess up. Sin's going to happen. But God's going to take care of it. But notice, his love will not pass away from him. Verse 16, your house, your bloodline, and your kingdom, so notice that deals with royalty, shall endure before me, how long? Forever. Your throne, that is the literal place of which he will sit, the place from which authority is exercised, is the idea, will be established how long? Forever. Now God just made a monumental promise. In fact, here's what's interesting. This is called the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant made with David. But the word covenant is never used. It's the idea of establishing the house of God. It's the idea of God dwelling with these people and saying, through you, I am doing something different. And you say, what does that have to do with the angelic realm? We'll get to that. But what I want to read next is David's response. David has a prayer response to God. I mean, think about it. God sends a prophet your way and says, Jim, I'm going to establish your kingdom, your line, and your throne forever. Now, from what we know of the New Testament, who results out of that situation? Jesus himself. Through you is going to come the Savior of the world. Does that sound a little humbling? Does that sound a little like, 
don't you know what I just did yesterday? Right? Notice despite all that, God's grace is overflowing and want to make this promise. Verse 18, then David the king went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, stop. You're going to see something very interesting here. Let me give you a little lesson about how your Bible's been translated, okay? Anytime that you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is the word Yahweh, which I've got in your notes is Y-H-W-H. It was written in Hebrew with no vowels, okay? And that name means that he is the self-existing one, okay? He needs nothing else to be, continue, sustain himself whatsoever. He is completely self-sustaining on his own. He is the creator. That's who he is. Yahweh, that's his personal name. You also have God, G, capital G, little O, little D, which is the word we get Elohim. And it's actually a generic name that is used for celestial beings. It can actually, and a lot of times the translators have translated it little g, little o, little d, as gods, little gods, meaning angels, demons, those types of things, celestial beings. But then you have a situation where you get to something like this. Look up here. Who am I, O Lord God? Capital L, lower O-R-D. And then you've got capital G, capital O, capital D. And if you have a little margin or a footnote in your Bible, you will notice that as you go over to it, the language is, is that capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is the word Adonai. And Adonai means Lord, but it also has the idea of master. It, it is almost a word that is used in a situation when it is really seeking to reverence God in that moment. It is really a verbal means of humbling themselves. And then the G-O-D after it all in capitals, that is Yahweh. So when you see this, it's the idea of Adonai Yahweh. Not just using the idea of you are the self-existent, you need nothing God, you are the amazing creator type name, but it is also using a very you are the master of all things and I'm bowing myself before you type of mentality. Does everybody get that? It's important because we're going to see how they're used back and forth. And if we were just reading through, we might not pay attention to it. So here's what David says. He's going to pray. And here's what he says. Who am I, O Adonai Yahweh? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? In other words, master, self-existent one, I am where I am only because your grace has put me here, is the idea. He says here, and yet... This was insignificant in your eyes, O O Adonai Yahweh. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Adonai Yahweh. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Adonai Yahweh. For the sake of your word. Man, that's worth underlining. For the sake of your word, truth. And according to your own heart, God's heart was involved in wanting to invoke this covenant with him. You have done all this greatness and let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Adonai Yahweh. For there is none like you and there is no Elohim besides you. In other words, you are the chief of all. He says here, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Verse 23. And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel? Completely unique group of of people. Whom Elohim 
went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself. Now watch this. Because the reason why he doesn't use Adonai Yahweh there to describe him is because, remember, what was going on between Yahweh and Egypt at that point? Who was Yahweh really fighting over? Well, they were, they were fighting to rescue... I'm sorry, let me be a little bit more clear about that. I realize that's very vague. Whenever Yahweh was seeking to redeem Israel from Egypt, who was the fight against? Was it really Pharaoh? Who's asleep? Come on, man, there's coffee here. Do we need to bring... Or do we need to have Art bring the, car, the cart down? And We're going to do communion. It's going to start with, de, with caffeination, right? So, it was against their gods. It was against everything they worshipped. They had more gods than you could shake a stick at. They worshipped everything. Anything that was created had a god attached to it. And they didn't care who they were bowing down to. They just wanted their own purposes met and satisfied. God, and notice all those gods, little g gods, are Elohim. God, Yahweh God, the Creator, steps into this situation and starts flipping everybody like Jesus was flipping the tables in the temple. We are not having this junk in here. We're not having this garbage. I am superior to all these things where you think that your hope is. It's not there. And so when he uses this word, capital G, lowercase O-D, and says Elohim, he is stating the Elohim, the Creator of all things. Notice, whom Elohim went to redeem for himself as a people, to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their what? There it is. That's who the real battle. Notice, the battle in the Exodus was not physical. It wasn't Yahweh versus Pharaoh in the Royal Rumble pay-per-view, SummerSlam, whatever. That's not what it was. It's this idea of a spiritual engagement. It is God showing Himself superior against those demons who would dare mock Him. So notice here, verse 24, For you have established for yourself your people Israel and your own people forever, and you, O Yahweh, have become their Elohim. Now, therefore, O Yahweh Elohim, notice he changes it up. The word, there it is again, the word, what God says, it's true. The word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever. Notice that David doesn't say, so I can get a rolls to pull up out front and take me where I need to go. He doesn't say that. Notice how pure David's heart is. God, you made this incredible, gracious promise to my family. We don't deserve it whatsoever. But by you fulfilling it, all that will happen is greater glory to your name. If we check our foundational principles, that's the chief end of all history. We are looking for everything to be resolved in such a way as to where God gets shining brilliance of glory and every knee bows and confesses him to be the one, the only the amazing creator. That's what we're all moving for. Notice that's David's heart. David's heart in this whole thing is unto that end. And so notice verse 26, that your name may be glorified forever by saying, here it is again, Yahweh of what? Oh, so everybody stick with me. Come on. Is Elohim over Israel? And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of? Good deal. The Elohim of Israel 
have made a revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. In other words, the only reason why I can pray anything like this to you, God, is because your promises are so great and they're so sure. Because your word doesn't fail. Because you have a perfect track record of truth. That's how I can come before you. And so he says here, verse 28, Now, O Adonai Yahweh, you are Elohim, and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Adonai Yahweh, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. I don't know about you, I could stand to pray that way more often. I spend a lot of time on Aunt Edna's bum hip. I could probably stand a lot more on the glory of God being recognized in my life. But man, this is a model prayer. Does everybody see the humility in it? Does everybody see David's heart in it? It's beautiful. Now here's a great thing I love about Scripture. Scripture will put a truth out there, but it won't leave you hanging. It's always got something else in the Word of God that's going to help you have a better understanding. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 89. And if this doesn't light your fire, check your wood. It's probably wet, okay? This is some good, good stuff. In fact, I think I wrote in your notes, if this doesn't cause your heart to jump, your jumper's broken. <clears throat> Psalm 89. This is going to speak, I mean, what this is really about is it's about God's Word. It's about the fact that he made a statement to David concerning this promise and the effect that it has on all of reality. This is where you're going to think I'm crazy. Verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness, of the loyal love of Yahweh forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness. In other words, how firm you are, how steadfast you are, how sure you are with my mouth. Notice, what is it to praise God? Well, we got two things so far just in this one little section here. To sing, to verbalize it, to tell people. I'm going to speak about how great God is. Is that you? Should be. Should be all of us. Speaking about the faithfulness of God. Notice, in the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. Verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. A covenant is a contract. The idea there, the, the, the Hebrew word berith actually means to cut. And it's the idea that we get whenever Abraham had the, the unconditional promise, the Abrahamic covenant given to him, and he was told, take animals, cut them down the middle, lay them out on the sides like this a path in the middle of which to walk through. And then he put Abraham down to sleep and the presence of God alone walked through. Meaning that, that entire covenant is contingent upon God's faithfulness, not Abraham's. Abraham was asleep. Had nothing to do with it. He wasn't part of the handshake. Only Yahweh was. So when we talk about the idea of covenant, that should be the mindset that conjures is the idea of cutting a solid agreement Everybody in here, if, you, if you're a homeowner, you've got a covenant with your bank, okay? That's how it works. It's an agreement that's been agreed to. How great would it be if they just gave you the home? It's all on us. Don't worry. Let's start praying for that. So, I have made a covenant with my chosen. The idea here is my choice one. When we talk about choice, 
uh, uh, soldiers of a group. We're talking about the best. We're talking about the Navy SEALs. We're talking about the black ops. That's what we're talking about. When we're talking about the best of a type of food, we're talking about the highest quality that is possible. We're talking about the best recipe imaginable. Notice, I've made this with my choice one is the idea here. He is the choice one amongst the people of Israel. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your what? For how long? Forever. Seed, line is the same idea. Your house is the same idea. Your progeny, who comes from you. He says here, and build up your throne. There it is again, throne, right? Dealing with royalty and authority to all generations. Now watch this, how it turns. Yes, thank you music guy, Selah. Yeah, what does that mean? It means pause, think about it, refrain. Some people think it means a crescendo. But notice here, verse 5. Music guy. Verse 5, that's your new name. I'm calling you that from now on. Did she say it? Oh, I thought you were blaming your wife. That would have been made for a... Revival was short-lived. All right, verse 5. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Yahweh. Now watch this. Have we just moved to the spiritual realm? Yes? Who's with, everybody with me? Okay, I promise you this isn't this hard. Maybe I build it up to be like, oh my gosh, what's he going to say? Just everybody, deep breath, relax. Let the tent, get, everybody get your shoulders out of your ears. It's okay. We're good. So notice, he was talking about speaking of his faithfulness on earth. He says here, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Yahweh. Your faithfulness also, now watch this, in the assembly of the holy ones. If you want to write, if you have your pen, click it. Psalm 82, right there next to it. What is the assembly of the holy ones? It's the divine council. It's a council of angelic beings that Yahweh meets with in heaven and that He judges because He is their creator. They will do His bidding. They are responsible for ruling over the nations and they're responsible for ruling faithfully. And when they fail, they are judged. That's what happens. So notice... Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For, here's the explanation. Who, now watch this, in the skies is comparable to the Yahweh. Is there any other Elohim, is there any other little G gods that is like big G God? None. Why? If for no other reason He created them. They are a creation. He is the creator. Notice the next one. Who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh. Now, if you have a little footnote there, anybody have a footnote next to Sons of the Mighty? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? Yes. What's it say? Sons of God. It's actually the Sons of God. Job chapter 1, the Sons of God came and presented themselves unto the Lord, and Satan was amongst them. Why? The Sons of God are demons and angels. That's what they are. Satan is one of those being fallen comes and they regularly present themselves before the Lord. And He regularly meets with them in the celestial realm. See, there's a lot more going on here than what we thought. Notice this. Verse 7, A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. The holy ones? That's the angelic realm. In fact, I got a little quote that I put in here. I just want to read it for you real quick because Yahweh is greatly uh, feared amongst them. I want to read this quote. Uh, It says here, Joseph Alexander explains the divine name here used, being Yahweh, implies that what makes him so terrible is his infinite power. The angels are again called holy ones, 
but furthermore described as the privy council, the confidential intimates of God himself. Yet even to these, as being endlessly superior, he is and ought to be an object of adoring fear. Why is that? For no other reason than he's their creator. And so notice, he is being proclaimed by his faithfulness as being superior amongst all of these celestial beings who have been deemed responsibility in how they govern the world. He is still preeminent over all of them. Notice he is greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. Everybody see that? His entourage, his council. He says here, O Yahweh Elohim of hosts, there it is again, who is like you, almighty Yahweh? Who is like you, the self-existent one? And the answer is, who's like God? No, okay, he's making sure everybody's not asleep. Did everybody get enough sleep last night? It's church, man. I don't care if it's 9 o'clock. Did Laverne take the emotion out of everybody? Is that what it was? It's like, he done worked this over, preacher. We ain't got nothing left. Second wind spirituality. Come on. Thank you. Is there anyone like God? No. So we get out our pens and we write, no one. Because when we come back to it later because we forgot it, we're going to sit there in a time of trouble and we're going to go, wait a second, there's no one like my God. So whatever sin I'm being tempted with right now is completely irrational because the God creator of all things is on my side. It doesn't matter the crazy demons that are going on everywhere. It doesn't matter when the world is falling apart. It doesn't matter that this weird guy is killing his staff and threatening to bomb everybody with nuclear bombs. God is God. And He is the God. And He is over all things. That's what we're getting at. When we're dealing with Psalms, we're dealing with praise. We're dealing with sound theology, but we're dealing with praise. Notice He says, Your faithfulness also surround you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Now we know Jesus did that, didn't we? Lord, we're going to die. Peace, be still. And it looked like a Thomas Kincaid painting at that moment. Notice the next one, verse 10. You yourself crushed Rahab. Uh-oh. That's not Rahab, the prostitute who hid the spies. That's not who that is. In fact, this Hebrew word has been very difficult for people to translate, and there's all kinds of ideas about what it means. So you have one translation that says, well, what it's actually talking about is a sea creature. When we read through the Bible, we see things like Leviathan, things like that in the Bible, behemoths, those types of creatures we're not readily familiar with in this day and age. It's a reference to that. Some people say, no, what Rahab is actually is it's a reference to Egypt. And the reason is, is because we're dealing with, with what God was able to do with the seas in order to, to destroy them. The commentator I found, uh, and I actually think it was Pastor Steve's professor, uh, Dr. Ross, Alan Ross, wasn't he one of your professors? Yeah. He wrote the commentary on Psalms for that, and he says what Rahab actually is in all of his, his research is Rahab is the name of the demon that was behind Egypt and overthrowing everything and, and bringing everything up into idolatry and, 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 and ruining, spoiling that entire civilization. So notice, you yourself crushed Rahab. Notice, a celestial battle is the idea. Like one who is slain, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Verse 11, the heavens are whose? Yours. The earth is? There you go. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. 
Tabor and Herman, shout for joy at your name. Yay, Tabor and Herman, shout for joy. What in the world does that mean? They're mountains is what it means. Like, yeah, guys, go. Oh, they're playing. No. It's mountains is the idea. The mountains are even singing out your glory. They're even praising your name. It says here, you have a strong arm. That's what's known as an anthropomorphism. It's, it's giving a, a way that we can understand because of physical terms to, to further um, explode the ability of God. So it says here, you have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Now, why do they bring that up? Here's the reason why. Because all the other little g-gods are ruling in unrighteousness and injustice. And that's exactly what they're called out for in Psalm 82 when Yahweh pronounces divine judgment against them because they were responsible for ruling correctly and they failed. They instead wanted to appease themselves and be worshipped as gods rather than attribute all worship to God is the idea. So when we see these qualities of righteousness and justice and they're the foundation of the throne, that's what we're getting at. Loving kindness, loyal love, and the truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Oh, Yahweh, they walk in the light of your countenance and in your name they rejoice all day long and by your righteousness they are exalted for you are the glory of their strength. And by your favor, our horn is exalted. What in the world does horn mean? Figuratively used, it's the idea of strength or honor or even could use, be used as a kingdom. That's how it's used in the book of Revelation is the idea of a horn being exalted. The kingdom is exalted or strength is exalted. He says here, for our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Notice that our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king to the Holy One of Israel. Who's the king? Well, no, they're not talking about Jesus here. They're actually talking about the promise made with David at this time. So it says here, verse 19, Once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones. This can be translated your godly one, your faithful ones, your loyal ones. It could possibly be talking about Nathan the prophet, maybe, who spoke to David and commissioned him with this Davidic covenant. I personally believe being consistent with the rest of this text here, the godly ones is talking about the council again. He says, And you said, I've given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loyal love will be with him. And in my name, his horn, his kingdom, his strength, his honor will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. And he will cry to me, you are my father. You know why this is so awesome that he says this here? Because David is the only person in all of the Old Testament that ever calls God father. Abraham didn't do it, Isaiah didn't do it, Ezekiel didn't do it, Solomon didn't do it. Only David calls Yahweh his father, which gives you a really amazing glimpse into the closeness of his relationship with the Lord. And because through Jesus Christ, the amazing privilege we have to call him father now. Everybody see that? Yes? Okay, am I the only one excited? Yes, okay, let's move on. My God and the rock of my salvation, I also 
shall make him my firstborn. I shall also put him in a position of privilege. He is going to have more than all. I am blessing him beyond belief. He says here, the highest of the kings of the earth. There is no higher earthly king at that moment. And there will not be until Jesus returns. David is the highest. He says here, my loyal love, I will keep for him. How long? Good, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants. How long? And his throne is the days of heaven. It will have no end. His throne will not end. In other words, here's what's going on. All you lesser beings who are supernatural in nature have been ruling your provinces wrongly. Yahweh God has made a statement. I'm going to take a human being and I'm going to make a promise to this human being who is lesser than what you are and I'm going to do infinitely more with him than you ever accomplished with the responsibility you had in reigning over your nations. Through him, I'm establishing his line. I'm establishing royalty. I'm establishing authority with him. And these three things are all going to meet together in the person of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he will deal with sin decisively. He will purchase the means of which to not only redeem lesser people, but also the ability to have the right to sit on a throne and judge you. Why is that? Because he's resurrected. Dead kings can't judge anybody. But his resurrection makes the judge alive forevermore. That's the point. So it's not just simply, oh, that's so nice that God did that to David. No. It is a huge line in the sand saying, I am progressing forward. My dominance of all things. And I'm doing it through people who are less than you. That's what he's doing. See, there's a lot more going on here than just physical stuff. Let's read 30 through 37. If his sons forsake my law, and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes, and do not keep my commandments, I'm so full of grace, I'm just going to let it go. Is that what he says? No, here's the reason why, because that's not grace. Grace is not negligence, that's called irresponsibility. That's what that is. Grace is someone taking the brunt of the punishment. Someone fulfilling the requirement that is demanded by righteousness. And allowing other people to walk free. That's what that is. But notice, if he messes up, if he gets out of line, if he forsakes me in any way, verse 32, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Verse 33, but I will not break off my loyal love from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant, my contract, I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. In other words, I won't change a word about the promise I made to David. Which sometimes, if you want something interesting, if you're the theological nerd in the room, Google progressive dispensationalism, read the synopsis of it, and then repent. Okay, that's the idea. Because what you find is, is it's a whole system of believing, progressive dispensationalism, that extorts the scriptures and says, well, David is, you know, Jesus is reigning right now at the right hand of God, and that's the throne of David. Is that what he's talking about when he talks about he's going to reign on a throne? Nothing in the passage has given us that. It's bad hermeneutics, which, by the way, <laughs> save that for another time. My covenant I will not violate. 
nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, notice that, how holy is God? That's what he's swearing by. I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure how long? And his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established how long? Like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. (laughs) Thank you, music guy. Well, let's pause for a second and let's take this in. So what we're saying is, is that in Genesis, God started with a sin problem. And He said there's going to be a seed from the woman that is going to crush the head of the serpent who deceived. And then He moved forward and backed off from all of the world and He took one man named Abraham and He said, through you I'm going to give a land and a seed and a blessing. And eventually down the pipe through Isaac and through Jacob, you actually come upon the tribe of Judah. And we're told in Genesis 49.10, the scepter will never pass away from between the feet of Judah. He is the line of royalty. Move through this time of exodus and rebellion and judges and you walk into the failure of the Benjamite Saul because he was not faithful to what God said. He did not believe God's word. He suffered from a case of unbelief and God removed him. And he goes out and he finds a little shepherd boy who had the most amazingly spiritually endowed slingshot we've ever seen in our lives. And he raises him to a place of authority and anoints him and says, I've always been with you. I've always fought your battles. I will always love you and your people. We read all that and that's great and we make a great deal of Sunday school material out of it. But here's what's going on. Satan, you do not win. Satan, I'm taking far less than what you are and making it happen. Satan, I am loving him regardless of his sin. Satan, you can't mess this up. All of these other gods that rule all these nations, you'll never compare. You'll never bring forth a Savior. I'm drawing a line in the sand. This is the battle plan that the Lord is fulfilling slowly. I'm progressively revealing how I'm not just going to conquer the known world, but all things in heaven and on earth and in the waters under the earth will bow the knee and will worship at my feet. Why? Because you alone are God. You alone are Adonai, Yahweh. You are the master. You are the self-existent one. And this is all embodied in probably a five foot three, brown haired guy of no reputation, probably a carpenter, probably had dreadlocks, walked around and didn't even get on the scene until he was about 30 years or so. That's the hope of the world. The hope of the world. The hope of the world. 